netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. And for this podcast, well, it's a monumental podcast of sorts because, well, for the first time since December 2019 in Australia, I'm sitting next to my best friend and business partner, Mike Seymour. Absolutely. And if you can hear noise in the background, it's because we're sitting in a rooftop bar uh, in Mexico. And what the hell are you doing in Mexico? I mean, I've been in Mexico. I think I've mentioned that before on the, on the podcast. But what brings you here? Well, since BC, as in before COVID, I've wanted to come visit you in Mexico. And this is the first chance we've had to do it. Um, so, yeah, you're the reason I'm sitting here in Mexico <laughs> drinking margaritas and recording a podcast. Well, but well, that's not what we wanted to discuss, not our, our, our social life, but in fact, uh, a special podcast we want to do as a kind of a intro to what's about to happen. Yeah, and that's because Mike is on a mini half-world tour of sorts. Stop in Hawaii, stop in Mexico, and next stop, Los Angeles for the Bake Off. Yeah, and we're looking forward to the Bake Off this year um, because, again, because of COVID, we haven't been able to go to the Cytex or to the uh, Bake Offs for some time. And the Bake Offs are actually a bit different this year. They've, um, they've moved them, John, to the new Oscar Museum in Los Angeles. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Like 10 films obviously up, including, of course, the Goliath or the elephant in the room, or rather the uh, underwater elephant in the room, uh, Avatar. So um, what can people expect at the Bake Off? For those who don't know the process, why don't you just go through what's happening? And, and yeah, it's, it's obviously the process that's used to determine who's going to win the visual effects, uh, special effects Oscar at, um, at this year's event. And so to give the Academy members a chance to appreciate what's going on with the films, uh, 10 films are in contention, and those 10 films get an opportunity to show samples of their work uh, and then allow people to uh, appreciate the work that's going on, sometimes which is obviously not obvious. So if you didn't have the opportunity to speak to the film, you may not understand that there's been visual effects work because the work is so good that it's invisible. Um, Now, we've been to past Bake Offs and they're notorious over the years for interesting things that have happened and just as a great place to to meet people. Right. Well, fantastic. I'm a bit jealous that I'm not going to be able to make it up there with you, but Obviously, it's quite exclusive. It's a limited audience that can actually attend. Yeah, it's it's this year. That in the past, we've had years where we've been able to have anyone go, and uh, certainly we've enjoyed that. Uh, the pre-event and post-event used to be awesome, uh, but they used to be in the evening. This is now at uh, 1 o'clock uh, on the weekend, on Saturday, and there's an event after that uh, where everyone's getting together. But to get in this year, you have to be either an Academy member or a... Uh, guests, each guest, uh, sorry, each member can have one guest. So we're lucky enough to be invited to be guests. Uh, so it's a real who's who of who's in LA for award season, as you can imagine, right? Because uh, it's one of the principal ways you can influence the outcome of the uh, of the Oscar. You're going to make a splash. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, well, so let's, I'm really looking forward to hearing this. Obviously, we're recording this a couple of days in advance, so let's go ahead and cross to you now in Los Angeles. Well, John, I'm now actually in the car heading to the uh, Academy Theatre, but it's actually pouring with rain here 
uh, in Los Angeles. So, so quite an unusual thing to be going uh, in such pouring torrential rain uh, on a Saturday, but it won't uh, dampen our enthusiasm for looking at the films. So the 10 films up for the uh, SciTech Oscar this year are All Quiet on the Western Front. As we said earlier, Avatar, The Way of Water, which is probably, uh, I think most people would agree, before we see them today, the, the favorite. Uh, then The Batman, uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Uh, next is Doctor Strange uh, in the Multiverse of Madness. And then one that I was a little surprised to see in the list, but I'm, I'm glad it's there. It's Fantastic Beasts and the Secrets of Dumbledore. Uh, Jurassic World Domination. Nope, which has got to be the inside kind of uh, indie preference. I guess Nope, very unusual visual effects, but we'll hear more about that uh, in, a, in a little while. 13 Lives, the stories of the uh, trapped children uh, by Ron Howard. And then uh, last but definitely not least, Top Gun Maverick. So we'll, uh, we'll see what they do and how they present. Uh, but as I say, that's assuming we can get through uh, LA's torrential apocalypse of rain. I say that because in any other city it's normal, but here in LA it's so unusual to be raining. So the event has now happened and let me run through the 10 presentations that we just saw. And I wanna start with All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a really interesting film. It's a foreign film. It was made as what they described as on a European budget um, and uh, just an incredibly harrowing film. And I hope you've seen it. It's really astonishing, obviously coming from a very famous book, but nevertheless, um, the realism in the film uh, was magnified tremendously by visual effects. A lot of complicated work in adding fog and making basically the, I think the way they described it is the battlefields both extensive and claustrophobic at the same time. A lot of fog work, a lot of uh, work adding in, of course, bullet hits, um, removing limbs, the atrocities of war, and adding in the uh, machines of war, the, the tanks, which were really revolutionary in the First World War. Now, every film like All Quiet on the Western Front had a 20-minute slot. So we had 10 20-minute slots. Let me explain how that worked and also what I'm going to do uh, here on the podcast. So they had in that 20 minutes a chance at the beginning to have uh, normally the lead visual effects supervisor come up and explain with before and after clips being shown behind them uh, what they did and what the challenges were and, uh, and what went on. Um, and then after that, there's a, a solid uh, montage clip run from the actual film with, of course, no before and afters, um, tightly edited, so we get a real sense of the uh, range of material that was done. And then on stage, uh, three of the governors of the um, uh, visual effects branch would come up and as would members of the visual effects team from that film, and then they'd do a short Q&A. But that Q&A was just uh, not from the audience, but from the, uh, the governors. So for example, Rob Bredow was one of those uh, governors. He was on the stage. He'd be asking questions. And I should point out also that Rob, um, who is, of course, very senior at ILM, also did a terrific job, I noted, in keeping an eye on the time. So when it got to a point that um, clearly the Q&A needed to finish, Rob would thank everybody and sort of keep it moving, which was really appreciated because obviously if you have uh, 10 things that run over, it's going to really be a very, very lengthy event. So as it turned out, it ran for about uh, four hours. 
What I'm going to do in running through the films, though, is give you some insight into the presentation that was done. But of course, we have extensive stories on nearly all these films on FX Guide. But I'm also going to give you some behind the scenes uh, color of what it was like, trends that we noticed um, that have developed, because obviously going to the Bake Off is a tremendous chance to just appreciate what's happening in our industry, what the trends are, what's hot, what people are discussing. And also just some of the machinations of how the Oscar voting uh, happens if you're not familiar with it. So uh, as I say, All Quiet on the Western Front, a really solid uh, uh, presentation to start. And one that um, I've got to say, as a visceral experience, the visual effects really worked hard and did its job in just making the film that much more emotionally impactful. This is about a king and Rizzer's to match. I can take care of myself. If this continues, it won't be long before you've nothing left. I don't care what happens to me. It's only gonna get worse for you. The next film up, The Batman. Now you might be wondering why it uh, was not in alphabetical order, and I'll, I'll come back to that later, but it's got to do with the, um, the screening and uh, the way that the uh, theater run. But The Batman uh, was great. It was really interesting. It was probably the talk that most emphasized, especially in the Q&A section, the careful and tight integration between practical and uh, visual effects. So for example, there were shots, um, and of course the Oscar isn't just for digital visual effects, it's for special and, um, and digital. But like they emphasize a couple of um, things. So one of them, for example, was the heavy use of LED uh, screens. So Greg Frazier, who of course, terrific DOP, but um, did uh, LED walls on The Mandalorian, uh, was very keen to have the LED walls used on the Batman. And so they, they did extensively use those and they worked out really well. And as somebody um, I was speaking to later pointed out, it's really nice to see the LED walls used for what they're good for doing. In other words, it was an effective use, a good use of a new tool and applied well. Um, another really good example they gave was the uh, sequence where the Batmobile sort of comes through the fire uh, landing as it does um, uh, at that particular point in the chase sequence. Uh, but it's just an extraordinary shot because the shot, if you've seen it in the trailer, is filmed in the side mirror of the uh, car that it's chasing. And so in the side mirror, that car's bouncing up and down and they actually got it in camera that that mirror reflected the car coming through the fire. But they needed multiple Batmobiles to do that because the one that they did the jump with had to have particularly good suspension so that it wouldn't uh, uh, crash when it landed. And so the only digital in that, in fact, was lowering the Batmobile back down to normal suspension height once it landed out of the fire. Now, I'm sure the shot was graded, but I mean, what an extraordinary thing to pull that shot off. And so Greg Frazier is using uh, digital and uh, integration of visual effects in the LED stages, but he's also going hardcore on doing uh, practical uh, when practical is you know, could have been done digitally, but he, all he required was the car's suspension to be adjusted uh, at the end of that shot. But one of the funny things about that talk, though, was um, Greg Frazier also came up with this idea of putting um, this uh, effect in with a filter. And this 
basically happened when the visual effects team wandered up and noticed that somebody had a tube of silica, which as you know, is the sort of stuff that clear silica is what you might use um, in a bathroom to seal a bench top. And they were smearing that on bits of glass filter uh, to put in front of the lens to cause this incredible chromatic um, aberration and sort of like a lens flare, but, but not. Um, it's as if water, I guess, was on the lens. And uh, something that had to be, of course, replicated by the digital team who had to go down to the uh, Bunnings hardware store and buy a bunch of silica and start uh, smearing stuff all over uh, uh, glass themselves to kind of replicate it. So a really good uh, presentation from the Batman team. Um, and uh, yeah, a really good use of uh, practical and, uh, and VFX work. They came from the water. has superhuman strength. I need to know if Wakanda is an ally or an enemy. You can come and find out. So the next film up was uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Now, you might be wondering what happened to Avatar. As I mentioned briefly earlier, because the uh, location that we were at was the uh, incredibly... Uh, brilliant projection environment of the David Griffin Theatre at the uh, Oscar Academy Museum. They were projecting all of those clips that I've discussed for each film in the right format for that film. Now, for all of the films other than Avatar, that meant in 2D, but Avatar had to be in 3D and uh, Dolby stereo and at high variable frame rate. And so for all of those requirements, they moved Avatar to the last one so they could flip over and just run the projection uh, that way and then they wouldn't have to uh, flip back again. So all the rest of the films are in order, but uh, Avatar moved to the last for only projection reasons. Okay, so Black Panther uh, Wakanda Forever was really interesting um, in many levels. Obviously, the film has been particularly uh, successful and also I think uh, has a pretty big campaign here to be included as uh, Best Picture. But in terms of the visual effects, one of the things that I thought was interesting about this, and we again covered the film on FX Guide, is the discussion of water. Um, so in, their, in the case of uh, Black Panther, there was a number of visual effects houses that worked on the film. And at the Bake Off, they don't really highlight the facilities. They're highlighting the work, they're highlighting individuals, but they're not naming facilities. That being said, um, the underwater sequences were obviously done by uh, Weta, um, and we knew that from the Q&A session. And they used a spectral renderer to accurately model underwater the way that uh, light changes um, because of the fact that it's being um, uh, transmissively going through water. So the whole presentation for um, Black Panther wasn't about water, but interestingly, water is going to crop up again and again and again uh, throughout the, uh, the presentations because it was like one of those themes. They did, of course, shoot dry for wet as well as wet for wet. But the adapted spectral rendering for the chromatic aberrations of the water was like really interesting. And also above ground, um, of course, in the attack sequence in Black Panther, there are huge uh, water tanks that dump down. And um, uh, ILM, I think, was talking at this point. And by the way, people weren't speaking to the press, so I'm not going to attribute quotes to people because they didn't think they were talking to the press. We were allowed to be there by the Academy. Don't get me wrong, we weren't um, doing this illegally. But they were speaking to their peers, not to the press. So I'm not going to quote uh, who said what specifically. But um, the quote that I thought was really funny in this uh, presentation was that, you know, we're looking at these huge water dumps and um, 
And to give you an idea how much water was coming out, I mean, you often talk about this in terms of like millions of gallons, right? Which I don't think, if you're like me, kind of means that much. But they pointed out that the amount of water they were dumping in um, Wakanda's uh, onset real practical dumps would fill a normal swimming pool in two seconds. Uh, that's how quickly the water was coming down. And so the, the quote was uh, basically everything was completely safe, but safe isn't really what you want in a film. <laughs> and so there was a lot of digital work on top of that uh, to add in that level of uh, danger that made it just so threatening uh, in the film. And the spectral rendering stuff is, of course, a hallmark of Weta's um, Manuka renderer, which has been around for a while, but uh, of course, Gavin, that uh, they've been working on Avatar, um, clearly, in my opinion, uh, has moved, you know, really far, uh, has really advanced the art of rendering by being able to do spectral rendering that uh, changes very much how things are shot. So, yeah, it was really interesting to um, uh, to see that, and I'll discuss more on uh, that when we get to the uh, Avatar section later. Be careful which path you travel down. Stronger than you have lost their way. You think there will be no consequences? We're in the end game now. Exactly. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness was next, and uh, one of the big Marvel films. Obviously, Black Panther is also a big Marvel film, but this is just a smorgasbord, if you like, of uh, insane kind of level visual effects work. So again, everybody presented um, as before in, uh, in the same kind of format. It was really interesting to me, though, this was one of the um, occasions where in addition to the incredibly complex visual effects work and digital doubles work, they also started flagging uh, the use of AI or uh, neural rendering for deep fakes, something that's particularly <laughs> of interest to me personally. And there's some really interesting comments about that, actually. Um, so the film in general had everything you could uh, imagine. And obviously there was fully digital shots as well as like a lot of uh, green screen and, and set work and stuff. But when it got to the digital doubles, um, they found in some of the fight sequences and some of the work with uh, Scarlet Witch that they wanted to do uh, face replacement with a deep fake, effectively a deep fake. And so... Um, what was interesting is they still rendered a digital double uh, pretty much exactly as you'd think with um, the face and lighting of what you wanted, but they produced the face and lighting in the scene with the digital double, the CG one. They then have a virtual camera attached to the face, which would provide another stream of training data, which would go into the machine learning, um, thus providing a whole lot of machine learning for where uh, the actress's actual face would be replacing. And so um, that really uh, worked out well for them. And I've got the impression from this that this was not the year of AI, but I'm pretty darn well sure next year will be. This felt like a lot of films had did a bit of AI and they'd sort of say, we did this, blah, 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 and we're exploring this more. Or we started to do this and it worked out really well, so I can imagine us doing uh, more. In the case of um, doing uh, Scarlet Witch, they made the point of, trying to retain as much as possible of the actress whenever they could, even if that was only part of the face. And also the need to really address the neck, which is, I think, a great point and one that someone often overlooked. People think about it just being the hockey mask. Um, but I think they did about 20 shots where they were using uh, machine learning. And uh, as I said, it makes perfect sense when you think about it afterwards. But, uh, you know, at the time, uh, not so much. The other thing about... Um, doing the work, and this is again something that's going to come up with multiple other films, is that they were hit by COVID. So I'll discuss that a bit more, but 
just a really a classic um, example of another film that had to work very, very hard to deal with uh, the restrictions that COVID has placed uh, upon us. Rescuing me, are you? Oh, well done. Off to save the world, are we? Not to worry. We'll be perfectly safe. So the afternoon was split into two halves with an intermission, and the last film before the intermission was Fantastic Beasts, The Secret of Dumbledore. And uh, this was, uh, again, another really good film. It's obviously been out for a little while. Um, I like the creature work that they showed. Framestore did a lot of just gorgeous creature work, um, huge amount of reference, of course, from things like deers and um, foals and um, just various kind of animals, right down to very small and, and also extremely large animals that had to be uh, produced for the for the film. So there was a lot of stuff about the previews of that or the design of that. And then the previews moved into also discussing the use of Unreal Engine and how they'd uh, use that to uh, use virtual cameras to work out the lines of what they wanted to do, the framing, the, the work of that, uh, and how that built up. There was also some really nice discussion, uh, of, as you can imagine, around the work that um, had to happen to just build on the history of what is a, effectively a very long franchise because you've got all of sort of the logic, if you like, visual logic that's come from Harry Potter, now spinning into Fantastic Beasts. And so they're in one sense kind of upping the level, but in another they're wanting to remain, you know, sort of consistent to the world and to canon. And so there were some nice uh, touches there and some complexity of how they uh, went about doing things. And with all of the before and after scenes, it's really great just to see what was actually available on set and then what they managed to um, fill that out to uh, to achieve. It's um, it's a good film and uh, it's one that, of course, in, in many respects has probably the, as there's no Bond film this year, <laughs> uh, the most uh, sort of history, if you like, of visual language that the uh, team had to respond to. Um, so anyway, that was the last of the presentations just before the break. There was a short break, uh, intermission, and then we went into the uh, second half. These creatures were here before us. And if we're not careful, they're going to be here after. We created an ecological disaster. Dinosaurs can't coexist. Jurassic World domination was uh, first up in the second half, and just um, really interesting to see how they worked with the uh, puppets and animatronics. So <laughs> there's there's some aspects of this that again really suffered from uh, COVID. So for example, um, they couldn't go out at the beginning of the film to shoot the trawler that gets attacked. So they said they combed 16 seasons of uh, The World's Deadliest Catch to find footage and material that they could use that then they could sort of build out. But when it came to things like the T-Rex, where they wanted to be um, sympathetic to and respectful of the history of the genre, they went right back to the 93 uh, ILM soft image files. They actually pulled those out as reference. And then they built the animatronics in such a way that they could... Um, have them very much as a sort of a perfect replica of what was going to be uh, digitally because what they wanted to be able to do is just extend out the back of the T-Rex rather than change the head. 
But by having the same files and, in fact, by using the same teams and taking advantages of new technologies, they were able to push the art. So the animatronics moved from foam latex back in the 90s when they were doing it to new silicon. And then the on all the other creatures, less obviously the T-Rex was already modelled, but for the ones that were modelling for new, they used ZBrush both for the special effects and the visual effects. And so the teams completely matched. So the SFX team could hand to the VFX team the, uh, the ZBrush files that they'd used to make the silicon uh, animatronics and they could make a digital copy that perfectly matched and, and vice versa. So it was a very much a sense of being integrated. Um, but they, they really got hit by COVID. Um, so there's a great sequence in Malta and they went through that uh, sequence. It's where they come across the black market of the dinosaurs and there's a chase sequence at the end where um, Chris Pratt is driving through Malta on a motorbike, except Chris Pratt never did that. Uh, in fact, he could never go to Malta. They couldn't travel. COVID had stopped that. So they shot Chris on a green screen stage on a thing they called the uh, the rolling road rig, and then they comped him back in. And they made a big discussion, and I think it was a good point. Um, for that 10-minute sequence, they had... Um, uh, a bunch of things that needed to be pulled off. One of which is making sure that they'd filmed the backgrounds first so they knew how to light Chris on the green screen to make him fit into the shot, which is a logical way of doing things. However, when they came to integrate the shots, the thing that you care about is Chris in the foreground. And so they actually found it easier to modify the background when the lighting that the background had dictated to wasn't very suitable or attractive or appropriate for the actor and they needed the actor to look different, they would then go back and, and re-light uh, or work over the top of um, the background. So it was good to do it with the backgrounds first. It's the right way to do it logically, but then you're going to favour the actor. So of that 10-minute sequence, about a third of the shots uh, were, you know, Chris, you could see him, it was Chris, and he's on this rig, which, uh, you know, would be comped into the shot. And about a third was just the stuntman, and you couldn't tell who it was because of the nature of the shot and they're on the bike or whatever. And then about a third of the shots, it was the stuntman with Chris's face. But here they didn't use AI or um, any kind of deep fakes. They actually did a seven camera array and then they used Nuke to do camera projection. And the point they made is that a realistic uh, photographically based uh, face double, even if the lighting isn't quite right, you're going to forgive much more than a digital double done which has a uncanny valley kind of eeriness to it because it's not a very good uh, representation of the actor. One point I didn't make earlier when we were talking about um, the uh, deep fake um, use that had been done in another film, uh, but I wanted to mention is a really great point. If you're doing like Chris Pratt, the main actor, of course you can do any amount of work. It's, an, it's the A shots. But there are occasions in films where it's a B character in the sense that it's not the actress any worse, but they're just not in the film that much. And so if it's a henchman or whatever and you have to do a face replacement on them, you're not going to have the time and the effort and the budget to be able to do a full treatment or even anything as complicated as this seven camera ray. And so the point was made by a, an earlier film that they're great uh, occasions for when you can use like a deep fake type thing because you get a great result and it's not as expensive or as complicated as doing a traditional uh, CG pipeline. But anyway, yeah, great uh, presentation by the uh, the team on Jurassic World Domination and uh, both creature and uh, and sort of straight visual effects work. 
this would be an opportunity. I'm talking rich and famous for life. There's plenty of videos for flying shit online. Ain't nobody gonna get what we gonna get. What we gonna get? The money shot. What's up? Undeniable proof of aliens on camera. The Oprah shot. So you guys gonna tell me what's going on? Hell no. no. So for a complete change of pace, we then had Nope. Now, I say a complete change of pace because this film is very different from a major franchise. For a start, it's not based off an existing IP. It's not, you know, a Potter or a uh, Jurassic or a, uh, an Avatar that's, you know, existing in a world. It was a unique world. And the second reason is you'd have to say it was the, not the indie film, but like the unusual one of the 10, I think. Um, there are other films that had different characteristics. Obviously, the first film being from Europe. But in this one, it's just an extraordinary character design. The uh, the jean jacket is just completely bizarre. And so the film had a lot of stuff, as you can imagine, in the presentation about the design on the uh, fabric simulation and stuff of this squid-like, um, jellyfish-like uh, jean jacket. So that in itself is really, really interesting. But the other thing that was super interesting as... Um, as has been covered before, is that they were shooting infrared Alexa to do the night material. So they were shooting in the day, but because they were shooting infrared, a blue sky comes out dark because there's no heat coming from a blue sky. And as a consequence, they were mixing 65 millimeter 15 perf and uh, infrared Alexa and making it look like um, it was all the one material and also recoloring the infrared to make it look like it's nighttime color footage because infrared naturally has no uh, color in our sense. Uh, so you want to have somebody with a red shirt still having a hint of them being a red shirt, even though it's at night. The infrared isn't going to give you that. It's going to give you the night sky. Uh, so you shoot in the middle of the day and then you still have to come back and add in that red of the red shirt, albeit um, as a night shot. So this was part of their philosophy of no blue screens. The other thing that was interesting to me, and I hadn't really picked up on this, is just how few of the uh, skies in the film were um, not digital. Like almost every sky, I think they were like, it's an astonishing number, almost like everything bar three shots, were sky replacements because they needed complete control of the sky, complete control of the clouds, what was going on. And so um, if there were skies or clouds um, or they were treating the sky because of the night infrared, it was all replaced. And, uh, and adjusted. So super interesting presentation. Um, it's a bit of a wild card. I'm not sure, um, you know, how that's going to go. And I guess that brings us to a point worth discussing, which is like, what's the criteria for giving somebody an Oscar? So the at the outset, um, uh, Paul DeBeek, actually, I think it was, Paul DeBeek was one of the other uh, governors. I think it was actually Rob Bretta who articulated what the Academy's official line is. And in summary, it's two things. Does it serve the story and does it advance the art? But if you think about how Oscars have been awarded over time, there are a bunch of non-official criteria that people may use for judging a film. So if you're looking at a film like Note, uh, it really depends on what criteria you're thinking about, whether it should go into the uh, final nominated uh, group. For example, you could be arguing, well, did it have the most amount of visual effects? Did it have the most complicated visual effects? Did it have the most original uh, digital or visual effects? Was it the best use of practical and digital? Like, 
Was it something we'd never seen before in terms of an art department uh, visualization of something? I mean, on that last criteria, you'd say, yeah, Nope had came up with a completely original character, but it was using cloth sims and we've had cloth sims before. Um, was it advancing the art? Well, yes, it was doing really interesting things with infrared, though uh, similar kind of things have been done, not with infrared, but in the, um, I think in the last podcast we did with uh, Rob Legato, we were discussing how they used in Emancipation the RG and B and then use separate channels to get their dark skies. So it's like, it's a really difficult uh, problem what people vote for. And it was there, it was a kind of a de facto thing for a while that like the biggest effects film would uh, get the Oscar. But don't forget at this point at the Bake Off, we're not appealing to the general population of the Academy members, which is dominated by actors. We're appealing to just the visual effects um, section or division or department, whatever it's called, the uh, section of the uh, Academy. So the only people that vote to determine what's nominated are people that are members of the Academy in the visual effects um, uh, area. And then once they're nominated, all nominees are voted on by the general uh, population. So it's really the case that to be nominated is to be done by your peers. And then to win is to appeal to the audience at large, which is a much bigger Academy audience. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's worth noting that, that it, so many people say it's just uh, an honour to be nominated. But in this particular case, you can have a very perceptive nomination from your peers that is perhaps not respected or reflected, probably a better word to use, by the uh, general uh, Academy overall. So this is the one. Will Nope get the nomination because it's seen to be innovative and have tackled things in an original way? Um, and then similarly, if it was to be nominated, would it appeal to the broader uh, audience of the Academy or not? Who knows? We'll find out soon. It takes a certain kind of mindset for the deep cave diving. You have to be a bit nuts. They're very, very dangerous. High water level and the low visibility. Barely shoulder wide. Pulling against very strong currents. The next one up was 13 Lives, uh, the Ron Howard film about the uh, 13 kids, or 12 kids and their, uh, their teacher that were trapped uh, in the caves in Thailand and managed to get out. So a true story. And one, of course, because it's a true story that has to be terribly respectful to what actually happened, but also is in kind of the zeitgeist of people remembering that it wasn't that long ago. And so you saw it a lot as it was unfolding on the news, you watched it, you experienced it. And so you have an idea of what it looked like. Uh, the film was actually shot in Australia and big undertaking. And again, a lot of practical work required to uh, do stuff, but there was no caves. It was six tanks uh, at two different locations. And while they could change the direction of the water going through the tanks, um, they basically were just filming in these tanks and then making that to become the uh, big, uh, you know, spectacle, I guess, that it was. I mean, it was very clear to me watching the film. Again, it was super harrowing, but it was very clear to me what was going on. I understood where the cavers were. They At no point was I kind of confused as to what was happening, uh, which was extraordinary when you think most of it's in the dark with uh, underwater and rushing water. And yet they did a really good job of building up that very, very long distance out of these just uh, six tanks and having that work uh, in front of the camera. 
But they did make the point that the tanks all be professional and, and marvellously built. Um, they would shoot Monday to Friday. Monday, they could do the wide shots because the tanks were clear and you could see and it had really good visibility. By Friday, they had to do the close-ups really close to the face because the tanks would have become cloudy or the sediment and dust and stuff or rocks or whatever, grit, um, would have built up. And they couldn't remove uh, sort of flotsam and jetsam in the water. So the only way to be able to film to see what was going on is film close-ups because by Friday, anything but a close-up would just be so murky you couldn't see what was going on. And so it became a thing that while they were filming, it was wide shots on Monday, close-ups on Friday, uh, and that was it. And then they'd have the weekend to settle the tanks down and then uh, clean them and, and go again. So a really super interesting uh, discussion. A lot of exterior work as well because it wasn't shot uh, at the location. Uh, so environmental work um, with lots of great reference and stuff to uh, build things up and uh, and make it work. So really, really good shot design that allowed us to understand what was going on. And again, uh, one of three films with water this year. So we've got what we've already discussed, which was the sequences in Wakanda. We've got a huge amount of underwater footage in uh, 13 Lives and then Avatar. So if you had to pick a, a thread for this year of what was the theme for the 95th um, Oscar Bake Off? It's water shots. Uh, I don't know that there's anything we can read into that. I doubt it'll repeat next year. But yeah, it was a lot of discussion of underwater photography, issues of being able to capture that stuff and the just sheer complexity of um, of doing it. And uh, And when I say complexity, I mean visual complexity, digital complexity and logistical complexity. There were like a, a thousand water tank truckloads uh, that had to be shipped in for the uh, shooting of uh, 13 Lives. And if you haven't seen the film, I'd recommend it. It's really complicated in, uh, in what happened, told in such a good way that you never lose track of what's going on. Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let me be perfectly blunt. You are not my first choice. You are here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, AKA Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine. Our second last film is uh, Maverick, obviously Top Gun Maverick, big, big box office success, massively uh, interesting. And uh, the film, I guess I, I felt like in one sense, we've had a lot of publicity saying that the film was shot in camera. Um, but what that actually transpired to is there were enormous amounts of aerial photography and really great work done. Uh, but quite often they would replace a plane that was being used to a different type of plane. So yes, it's a digital shot, but also it was shot you know, by another aerial camera platform shooting a plane doing stunts. It's just that that stunt plane was then uh, replaced to another one. And let's not forget the film actually starts with the Dark Star, which is the... Um, uh, experimental uh, plane that uh, Tom Cruise's character is flying and pushed before he goes and gets uh, sent back to the Top Gun Academy. And so there's a lot of complicated visual effects work in that because it's incredibly high altitude, um, Mark plus 10 stuff that clearly doesn't exist. But when we got into the main um, footage, it was interesting to hear about the gimbals that had been used. They had uh, various gimbals for shooting uh, close-up shots and they decided to shoot those out in direct sunlight so they'd spin the gimbals to get the light where they wanted them. Uh, but something that I hadn't thought about, which is kind of pretty interesting, is that they couldn't do uh, very easily camera tracking with these planes flying around in the air. 
naturally, of course, we rely on so much stuff on the ground for camera tracking. But if you were sort of focused on a plane at high speed from another plane, then all the background's so blurred, you're not going to be able to camera track off it. So they ended up using a lot of GPS data and uh, trying to use that GPS data from what was going on in both the plane and the tracking planes to actually work out where things were so they can actually do an accurate camera track uh, and map stuff out. Another thing, which perhaps is no surprise, uh, the as I said, the US uh, Air Force or military weren't very keen for them to actually blow up real missiles. Uh, so there was a lot of um, <coughs> fire and explosions and digital work um, in adding, especially in the uh, last uh, act of the film, when they have that incredible uh, sequence, um, successfully doing the uh, bombing run and then the attack and response from the very nondescript, unnamed, uh, we don't know who they were, enemy. So, yeah. Uh, but they got, um, as I said earlier, the uh, like a L-39 jet, they painted it grey. And the fact that most of the military planes were grey and that their uh, own stunt plane was grey was really good lighting reference because... If you think about it, you kind of got a, not a grey ball, but something equivalent to a grey ball to help you work out what's going on in lighting. And so they'd fly that um, L-39 jet and then they'd be able to swap it out uh, with, say, a Tomcat or F-14 and, and you'd be able to get the lighting really uh, good because you'd have this great kind of grey scale colour reference <clears throat> upon which to work from. So a good presentation, really interesting. And um, as we said at the start, it's just uh, a phenomenally complicated job to appreciate what is or isn't real in a film that's done really well. And so in this case, it was great to actually see, because there were like 2,400 visual effect shots in Maverick. But it's really hard to tell what was real and what wasn't because it's so good. And also, as I said, the publicity has centered a lot around the fact that Tom Cruise was in planes, which he was. He wasn't actually flying the planes. He was uh, in the back seat with a obviously an airline uh, aircraft pilot Air Force pilot in the front seat, as you'd expect. You wouldn't want to risk anything else. Um, so, but he was, you know, pulling the G-forces and doing all that. And so there was a lot of roto and work uh, in addition to the uh, jet replacement. But uh, again, great presentation, as, as all of them were. So what does her heartbeat sound like? Mighty. Which brings us to uh, Avatar, which um, Way of Water, which is just uh, the last film, as I said before, for projection reasons, but also like I think a film that uh, certainly really looking forward to um, hearing about because it's just such a monumental film, and you really got that impression uh, when they were talking about it. The the. The criteria, as I discussed before, you know, it's multidimensional as to what makes for a good Academy Award nominee. But if you wanted to just think about it in terms of um, advancing the art for a second, uh, well, I guess by both criteria, right? Clearly, Avatar, the story is completely told by the visual effects. So you couldn't possibly imagine the story without the visual effects. But in terms of advancing the art, we did a really in-depth piece with Joe LaTerry on the new facial structure uh, that they use for the characters. And I'm not just saying this, I really saw the film and a couple of times went, oh, that's really great makeup before I kind of slapped myself and realized, oh my God, that's not makeup, that's a digital character. Um, so the the facial stuff, huge advance there. But then well, that's all we focused on in that particular article on FX Guide with um, 
Jalachari, you could have just as easily focused on the way that the water moved over the skin, uh, a whole new water system that left little um, sort of residue droplets behind as water streaked and came off them. And uh, the, the water interaction, there was an entire new system of doing real-time previews so that they would have a depth system that worked such that they could have a digital character in real-time comped into a shot Jim Cameron could look at when they're doing live action and digital, and that character would be comped in in depth, in, in terms of Z-depth, uh, correctly. And that was previewed, and it even worked with water. So they had water splashing up, and they could place the character relative to the water, and they didn't even expect that to work. Then there's the underwater uh, motion capture, performance capture work, extraordinary work. They were shooting and doing work in ultraviolet and infrared to try and uh, capture material in a different part of the uh, spectrum of light so as to get uh, stuff that worked better. Like there's like a whole series of things, any one of which any normal film would have applauded as being an extraordinary technical advance. So there's no way that the film could be done justice in such a short amount of time. But speaking as somebody that appreciates the technical advances, um, it was jaw-dropping just to hear these kind of rattled off so quickly. Um, I mean, they did a great job of presenting them, but they couldn't possibly go into the level of detail uh, that you'd want to think. Now, makes sense, right? They've been working on Avatar for a long time, and this is a base core technology that will be carried forward into the sequels to these films, uh, which are Avatar 3, 4, 5 kind of thing. So it's worth the investment, it's huge investment, but boy, has the, um, has the art been moved forward in terms of the technical side. And that was demonstrated incredibly effectively by the uh, Avatar team. We actually spoke to Joe after the event as well, because he um, he actually, his presentation, the before and after section, was uh, a clip with him narrating it pre-recorded. And I asked him why he'd done that. Uh, only one other clip had done that. Apparently there was a little bit of confusion behind this. Well, not confusion, but there's an initial plan that people would record those before and after sections and then play the clip and only be live for the... Q&A. When they got here to Los Angeles, it was decided that wasn't going to be the case. So Joe figured rather than read the script, as he'd already recorded it, they'd just play the one where he'd recorded it. So for every for eight of the 10 presentations, the visual effects supervisor walked through personally what was going up on the screen on the before and afters. And for two clips, um, two films, sorry, the clips actually had a pre-recorded narration for no other reason than, as I say, um, kind of logistical planning. But it kind of worked for Avatar because there were so many points to hit and such a small amount of time that almost every word uh, counted. So it was a really good um, uh, presentation, as you'd expect, and finished out the day really well with uh, the 3D viewing, which was both uh, Dolby stereo and variable uh, high-speed frame rate inside the clip. So they were changing frame rate as we moved through it. Um, really complicated technical stuff and just gorgeous. And I will say the David Griffin Theatre and the Dolby projection team did an outstanding job. I've never seen <laughs> film material look this good. We saw all of these films, of course, with the same level of uh, attention to detail and projection, but it was exquisitely projected. I mean, the audio was magnificent. It was just, if you ever get a chance to go to the David Griffin Theatre and watch something at the Academy um, Museum, do it, because it's just a really good experience. Uh, so, yeah, a great event. It went into a party afterwards, um, a cocktail party, which was a who's who of everybody, as you can imagine. Um, but 
the uh, teams that were contributing work from London and Vancouver uh, weren't obviously there. So the London uh, time zones allowed them to do a live event simultaneously in London, which had everything that we were doing beamed into London. And they were trying to do that for Vancouver. They couldn't pull it off. Uh, but clearly the visual effects industry is split very heavily at the moment between multiple locations. And so for those members at all the major UK companies, the DNEGs, the frame stores, et cetera, um, they could go to an academy event in London and be live watching what we were watching. And for um, uh, members in the audience in the room we were in, there was also um, American Sign Language translation, which I thought was really nice. So a great event. Uh, hopefully in future years, they may open it up to allow anyone to come. But I got to say, just personally watching it, I just, you know, you get those kind of moments where you go, yeah, I really am proud to have anything to do with this industry. Like it is so incredibly, I don't know, like, re, um, like it re-engages you as just to how much work, how much great work is being done, how interesting that work is, how fascinating the subjects are that the industry is trying to tackle. It's just really kind of feeds the soul <laughs> to go to a bake-off. And because they're talking to their colleagues at the level that you'd expect, you know, that it's, it's insightful. Um, nobody has to explain or dumb things down. It's just a really marvellous event. And I just can't appreciate, um, I can't articulate enough how, how much joy I got from being there. I'm sorry John couldn't make it, but it was certainly great hooking up with John just prior to the event. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed this chat. Please go to FX Guide to check out the in-depth stories uh, around these films that we've been covering and we'll cover the actual nominations and, of course, the final Oscar results when they come out. But for now, that's it for me. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Mike Seymour. See ya. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.